Welcome to Hot Breath Comedy Fam. On Monday, May 13th, I am teaching a clean comedy workshop. The last four I have taught sold out very quickly, so if you wanna learn about clean comedy, the business side, where the line is, how to write clean comedy, go to the link in the description of this episode, and we'll see you there. For anybody who's out there listening who is wondering, I mean, what's the key to all of this? The key to all of this is just not worrying about the outcomes. It really is. Because if you, if you, sorry, I just, if you fear the outcome, what happens? You stare at a blank page, you get nothing done. You look for an excuse not to work, you walk away. If you don't fear the outcome, what happens? You generate content. Most of it's crap. Almost all of what we create is crap. But, you know, as it says in the comic toolbox, for every 10 jokes you try, nine won't work. Once you get used to that math, everything becomes easier. Hot breath. What's goody, Hot Breathiverse? Welcome back to Hot Breath, the show where you learn comedy from the pros. I'm your host, comedian Joel Byers, and this episode is a follow-up to last week's interview we did with John Vorhouse. I pulled out of the vault last year's Q&A we did in our Hot Breath Pro community with John and pro member Bo Johnson. So if you enjoyed last week's, you're gonna love this, and if you didn't hear last week's, go check it out after this episode as we are all in this together, my comedy friends. And there is only one thing left to do. And that is inhale a hot breath with John Vorhaus. John, could you give us kind of like a brief intro? Kind of just give a context for like... Yeah, I'll give you my life story in less than a minute if I can pull it off. Go for it. I graduated from Carnegie Mellon University with a degree in creative writing, went into advertising copywriting, lasted in that career for 18 to 20 months before I realized I didn't want to spend all my creative mojo making the world safe for advertising. So I fled that career straight into singer-songwriting, where I spent five years singing and playing guitar in a folk circuit of New England before I discovered there were two things I couldn't do particularly well, sing and play guitar. So I set that career aside, came out to Hollywood, started making sitcoms, wrote for Married with Children, uh, Charles in Charge, a few others that you might know, many, many that you don't know. At that point, I discovered that I was also pretty good at teaching, and I wrote a little book called The Comic Toolbox, How to Be Funny Even If You're Not. And that book started getting me opportunities to travel and teach overseas. And then I had the choice of Hollywood or the rest of the world, and I chose, please, the rest of the world. Hmm. So I've spent my entire adult life writing books, writing screenplays, um, writing television shows and teaching other people all over the world how to do those things. Was that less than a minute? I feel that was a tight one minute. You nailed it. And even Bob Kirk just commented and said that comic toolbox. Yeah. Like, yeah. Comic toolbox. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, as um, we'll definitely dive into your new book, but something that just struck me, and this is a topic that's been coming up a lot in our community, is the mentality of being a comedian, the mentality of actually committing to the professional pursuit of comedy or comedy writing, whatever it is, and hearing you make so many just transitions through your life from like, oh, I could go the advertising route, never mind. Oh, I could go the Hollywood route, never mind. Like, how, how, do you have any tips on how to make such big decisions for like a comedy yes. that may be jumping in full time? You know, like, uh, definitely. How do you, yeah. 
I totally definitely do. First of all, you touched on something really important. In my life, I've passed through a lot of things. Some of those things I've succeeded very well with, comic toolbox, my how-to books in general. Some other things I passed through without quite so much success, singer-songwriter, for example. Uh, my novels is another example. And what I've come to understand is it, that's the rhythm of my life. I'm going to do new things. I'm going to take them on. Some I will absolutely master, and some I will enjoy and then set aside. The thing that holds all of this together is just four words, and they're the four words that drive me and will save everybody in this space. And those four words are these, don't fear bad outcomes. Every block we put in front of ourselves, every challenge we look off or decide not to take, every risk we propose to take but then decide not to take is rooted in the fear of a bad outcome. If I'm uh, an open micer and I'm trying to level up to a middle or a you know, whatever, whatever is my next aspiration. The thing that I carry with me is the fear that I've already reached my level of competence. And if I try to go a level higher, it will be a disaster of unmitigated proportions. It'll be like a building collapsing on me. This is the sense we have in our heads. And as long as that sense is there, then we can't really open up the door to trying new things. So the antidote is don't fear bad outcomes. You're going to have 100,000 outcomes in the course of your life. Some of them good, some of them bad, some of them really bad, but that's the texture of your life. Mm. And when you think about your life as experiencing texture rather than winning it, that's when you move into a whole new realm. Yeah, when I when I made the decision to go full time comedy, I like sat down and listed out best case and worst case scenario of making this decision, and I was willing to live with worst case scenario if that were to be the case. So that mm -hmm. I guess that helped add some context and clarity to like, oh, what is the worst thing that could happen? Okay, I'm fine with that, and made the decision according to that. So that that really resonates with me and you saying people being afraid of bad outcomes, you know. If I could just have all my fear back, you know, if I could have a lifetime of anxiety, of creative anxiety washed away, then I would have like a whole other lifetime of time to deal with. Here's the way I describe it. When I started out in my practice, I would spend four minutes of worrying for every one minute of writing. It was standard. It was just a write for a minute and then sweat for four minutes and write for a minute and die for four minutes and on and on. Nowadays, I feel like I've kind of flipped it. I can get about four minutes worth of writing in for every one minute of worrying. But I never, I never hold on to the idea that I'm going to stop worrying for a reason that we already just described. Creative, creativity, comedy, it's a have more, need more condition. Whatever level of success we get to, we immediately want the next level. And because we want the next level, we're already thinking about the challenges and the setbacks of the next level. And we're thinking about the failure or anticipating failure at the next level. So, you know, fear uh, is part of every man, every person's creative process. I call the little voice inside my head my ferocious editor, because mm -hmm. I, if I have that idea in my head, then the, that character is a little less damaging to me than it might otherwise be. But for anybody who's out there listening, who is wondering, you know, what's the key to all of this? The key to all of this is just not worrying about the outcomes. It really is. Everything else takes care of itself. Because if you, if you, sorry, I just, if you fear the outcome, what happens? You stare at a blank page, you get nothing done. You look for an excuse not to work. You walk away. If you don't fear the outcome, what happens? You generate content. Most of it's crap. 
almost all of what we create is crap. But, you know, as it says in the comic toolbox, for every 10 jokes you try, nine won't work. Once you get used to that math, everything becomes easier. So if I don't fear bad outcomes, I can write a list of 10 bad jokes. And in the 10 bad jokes, I can find the one good one, which is one good joke more than I had or would have if I had let myself be blocked by the fear of bad outcomes. <sighs> <sighs> And Chris, I know. I, Chris, I rant. Christy just said, I love John. I've listened to him and he seems like he su has such an exciting life. You got no idea, sister or brother, <laughs> man, girl, person. Um, I'm, I am alive in my practice. If, you, if you're watching this and not just listening to it, you may notice this cool old background here. This is my art. I did this. What? So, yeah, what? Well, it's that a, was a Zoom backdrop. Yeah, I know you thought it was. It's not. It's a it's nice. a produced artwork, um, a tapestry kind of thing. Well, backdrop. Let's say not tapestry. Oh. The point is, I didn't start doing art in any sense until I was sixty years old. I'm sixty five now, so I started from a standing stop into art, and now that's part of my life too. So. If you get the impression that I'm pretty turned on by the life experience I'm having, you are not wrong. And the reason is I keep doing what I've been doing all along, which is go off in all directions I can, as hard as I can, for as long as I can. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Very inspiring. It's the way to but it's the way to it's the way to be, guys. Look, you know and I know. And our listeners know that the path we're on is fraught with struggle. Mm -hmm. Most people who set out to succeed in any creative enterprise don't, leave, don't achieve the level of objective success that they're after. And if they think about that level of objective success too hard, it's going to be a block in their path. But they're walking that path because they want the joy of creative fulfillment. The buzz you get when you tell a joke that lands, the thrill you get when you put a piece of paint onto a canvas and it really works, you know, what the, the, the rush you get when you come up with a hook for a song, whatever your thing is, all of us as creative people are just intensely chasing the buzz. So as long as we understand, it's my job to chase the buzz. That's why I was put on this planet. You were, we all were, everybody who's got the urge to create. So if it's your job to chase the buzz, then the best way to do your job is to figure out how to get more buzz for less heartache. And that's why I'm always thinking about things like setting my goals and my expectations in a place where I will be, I can't fail to succeed. Like, I'll give you an example. You're going to an audition. And it's a big audition. It's a level up audition, like we talked about before. Now, you might have it in your head. If I go into this audition and crush it, my future will be made. I'll be success. I'll be famous, rich, talk shows. Everything's going to fall, follow from this one audition. On the other hand, if I fail this audition, my life is over. Now we've placed the stakes way up here in the sky. Our expectations are so high that we can't succeed. And we say to ourselves, let's change our expectations, push them down to the floor. I'm going to go into this audition and have fun. That's something I can do. I have fun all day, every day. Now I'm relaxed. Now I've taken the pressure off me. Now I can go into the environment where I want to perform without the pressure to perform. Then I can perform more successfully. So it's all about making strategies that improve your practice and with a clear eye that improving your practice is really the only thing that matters. But what about money, John? Money matters. Money matters. 
<laughs> money matters. In my younger days, I used to tell people, quit your job. That was my first advice. They'd come up to me at book signing or something like that, and, and they'd, they'd say, I'm interested in your career, and, and I'll stop. Do you have a job? Yes. Quit your job. That That's reckless advice. I've stopped giving that. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's not right for everyone. It's just not. It was certainly right for me, but it's not right for everyone. Um, money matters. And fitting a creative practice into the corners of your time is hard. There's no doubt about it. Uh, I'm just thinking about myself and my own experience from early days to today. Some of my creativity drives my earn, and some of my teaching or other related skills consulting drives other parts of my earn. I'm super flexible. I can do a lot of different things, which means that when money-making opportunities come up, I'm in a position to execute on them. I have a very strict policy of never leaving money lying on the table. If someone wants to pay me to do something, whether I know how to do it or not, I will say yes to it and then figure out how to do it later. <laughs> but, but if the essential challenge that you're speaking of is I'm trapped in a full-time job and I can't get enough bandwidth, enough time and space to be in my practice, I will say to that, get what time and space you can for starters, but also recognize the possibility that there's a secret conspiracy happening between my ferocious editor and what I think I need in terms of material wealth. So that if I'm in a position where I say to myself, my choices are following my muse down another rabbit hole into some other weird art or doing my job and earning my paycheck. I might not follow my muse because I'm afraid to, and I'll use the need to gather a paycheck as an excuse not to do the thing I'm afraid of doing. Typically, I'll come home from a day of work, I've burned out my brain, as somebody else's employee, I don't want to write an hour's worth of jokes. I want to sit down on the couch and veg out. But if I'm going to be in my practice and that hour is the only hour I have, mm -hmm. then I better find a way to grab it because otherwise I'm just lying to myself and then I'm not in my practice because part of being in your practice is telling yourself the truth about what's going on there. And that's a common excuse that we can create, especially if we have a day job. You know, when I worked at uh, Enterprise Rent-A-Car, I, would, I can see you there, by the way. I totally mean, see you there. There's there's a movie role or something where I'm an enterprise <laughs> rent a car person again. It's just it was just too perfect, and um, the job was terrible. The job wasn't perfect, but uh, the circumstance was. And when I did that, I worked all day. I would write on my lunch break and then go do shows at night. So it's like we can a lot of times give ourselves an excuse for oh I don't have time or. Is that that's not really worth investing in? What's the point of that? You know, I can figure it out on my own. Like there we can tell ourselves these things that actually end up selling ourselves short from what we're capable of. Mm -hmm. I, I'll tell you one decision I wish I had back because I really didn't understand it. When I first came to Los Angeles, I auditioned for Groundlings and they said, you passed the audition. Now you can take a class. And in my reptilian brain, I thought that's just a ripoff. Everybody passes the audition so they can charge you for the class. I'll have none of it. Mm -hmm. I wish I could have that decision back because I'm sure the class would have given me uh, opportunities and, and insight that I had to acquire much later by other means. Yep. Um, but, but let's stay with this for a minute because our heart can go out to 
everyone who is not fully free to pursue their dreams, everyone who is not doesn't have complete ownership of their time, mm -hmm. maybe because they have student debt, maybe because they have family obligations, you know, and I could say quit your job. I could also say, you know, um, send your children off to boarding school. It's not necessarily practical to do so. I was going to say, you know, just dispose of your children, but I didn't want to go there. The point is people have obligations. Oh man, I'm in trouble. Dispose of your children. I can see that on, as a meme. John Vorhaus says, canceled. dispose of John Vorhaus canceled Vorhaus. on hot breath. <laughs> <laughs> we got the tea, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> I have to cover my face. I'm blushing so bad. Uh, it's 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 a consideration for us older individuals um, <clears throat> because the the norms of accepted behavior have changed a lot since I was a youth and uh, I, I am trying to be mindful. I've lost the point. I'll see if I can come back to it. Look, there's always a gap between where we are and where we want to be. And sometimes the gap is, is quite large and it's set about with things like I can't afford to go where I want to go. Sometimes the gap is much smaller. It's just I've written this act five times. It's still not quite right. Maybe I have to write it another time or another 10 times. So we're always thinking about the gap. We're always trying to close the gap. If you're stuck in a place where there's no progress in closing the gap, a couple of things you might do to help yourself. Uh, one is to take the long view and recognize that if you feel like you're stuck in a plateau or in stuck in neutral whatever metaphor you want to use, that circumstance is going to change. That's the nature of life. Sometimes we're rising, sometimes we're falling, sometimes we're on a plateau, but it always changes. So if you feel stuck now, just have faith that eventually you'll come unstuck. Mm -hmm. And if, if the gap feels too big, if you feel like there's just no realistic way to get from where you are to where you want to be, set a smaller target, set a closer target. Um, and this is the way I frame it in my own mind. I'm a, a young person and I want to be, I know a lot of guys like this. I talk to them on Facebook all the time. I'm a young person in Nigeria or Gambia trying to be a stand-up comic. You've seen these guys. They yeah. come around. My heart really goes out to them because, man, Ian, try making a living doing stand-up comedy in Nigeria. I, Maybe it's better. It's a better scene than I think it is. But if it is, then maybe Burkina Faso is the dead zone. I don't know. Mm -hmm. the, the point is, you know, you can't make a living yet doing that, but you can find an opportunity or create an opportunity that won't cost you anything and might lead to something. For instance, go to an open mic. For other instance, if there is no open mic, start an open mic. Mm -hmm. Doesn't cost you anything. It gives you a leg up. It gives you a sense of purpose and a sense of community. And those are two things you always need if you're participating in the creative arts and especially in stand-up. And the, the cliche would be pull yourself up by your bootstraps. But I would encourage people to think about that as less as a cliche and more as a strategy for making small gains and achieving small wins. Yeah. Oh, and this, yeah. Uh, Erica said, I absolutely love the comic toolbox. It definitely helped me get my mindset together after a couple of obstacles. Mm. Wow. Beautiful. Can I show, can I show you something? Sure. Please. Check this out. Check this out. The big reveal. That is a comic toolbox coffee mug. Oh, I need one of those. I know you do, but you have to time travel to get them because oh, this is from 1994. This is when the book came out. 
Oh, look at that. Oh, our, our oh, mugs are available uh, now. Uh, too, yes. Uh, my mug is available things. only by Time Machine. The, <laughs> point that I, the point that I wanted to make was back in 1994 when my publisher said, I'm making a bunch of mugs. I said, like, okay, fine, make mugs if that's what you do. Make sure I get one or two because I might want to have them. The fact of this thing being present in my life 20, 25 years later speaks to the amount of opportunity that exists within our lives, especially if you're young, you're on the young, younger side, you just have no idea how much opportunity lies ahead of you. Someday you too can have a mug with your own logo on it. You play your cards right, you can probably have that mug today. <laughs> I mean, you can design it yourself and, and print it and have it shipped to your home. I like that logo, by the way. I'm a fan of logos. Ooh, Let me show you. Thanks. Let me show you my latest. Ooh. Uh, this says Slacker, Slacker Wednesday. Wednesday, Los Angeles Ultimate. That's Ultimate Frisbee. Uh -huh. And then the motto, it works because you don't. This is my game. I've been hosting my own midday, midweek Ultimate Frisbee game for 20 years. Wow. And finally did a sticker. So Very nice. Um, Look, I, I don't I don't deny that I'm fortunate. I have a, a great deal of fuck around time in my schedule, <laughs> <laughs> like like an incredible amount of, but just built into it, and and I spend it doing nonsensical stuff, we, stuff that just pleases me on tickles me on a kind of an arrested adolescence level. Mm. But it's not by accident that I'm living a life of autonomy and agency. Because I said to myself at a very early age, no one's going to be the boss of me. I'm going to be the boss of me. And for people who want to be in their practice of anything at all, that choice to be the boss of your own time, to, to uh, seize your autonomy and your agency, that's the difference maker. And if you make it now, it's going to pay dividends in unsurprising ways. Uh, or in surprising ways, in terms of collected artifacts like a comic toolbox mug, but also uh, a crude lifestyle benefit, if I can make up that phrase, uh, meaning a lot of time to uh, fuck around when you're older. Yeah. That is the goal. I'm not retired. I, I want to point out, I'm not retired, by the way. This isn't grandpa saying, now that I'm retired, I can do what I want. I'm determined to finish hard. I will stay professional till I die. It's oh. just that I get to define what's professional. I like that. So with the script writing, um, script writing is actually something I'm very interested in getting into. So a little book of sitcom, right? Oh. A little book of sitcom. Oh. There you go. You voiced with... my inner thought. Yeah, that's, that's John. That's John. <laughs> John, how many books have you written, by the way? Two dozen. Two dozen. More or less. Two dozen. Wow. Yeah. So this is his newest one. So I didn't mean to cut you off there, Bo. I just wanted to. Uh, yeah, don't worry. It's, con... it's my, yeah. Um, I want to be able to share me. the link so people can get the book and all that as well. I have children. They love cutting people off too. Yeah. And <laughs> and I live in Charlotte. Charlotte. And I live in, I live in Los Angeles where they love and, to cut people off. Right. <laughs> get cut off and get flipped off. Yeah. Anyways. Um, and then get blown off. There you go. Hey. Hey. With the interest of starting to do script writing, uh, so, so what are like the earliest steps for anybody? Because I know that we have a few people in Hot Breath who are interested in this but have no idea. Where do I start? How to go about it. Um, I'm going to give you a, um, uh, a quick overview. And I'm also going to 
make an offer to your viewers and listeners. If you send me an email or reach out to me by social media, I will actually send you the information that I'm about to share with you. It's called JV's one page pitch template. And it gives you a way of thinking about a situation comedy in just one page by looking at the following essential elements, the title, try and get my hand here, the title, the theme of the show, which is to say the instruction, the genre, fish out of water, comic opposites, whatever it is. A one-line description of the show, because if you can't pitch it in one line, you don't understand it yet. A one-line description of each of the main characters, because if you can't get them down to one line, you don't have them yet. Three or four sentences in one paragraph form about your pilot episode, because again, if you can't tell it in three or four sentences, you don't quite have control of it yet. And then as many one-line ideas for episodes, for other episodes, as the page allows. Now, the reason this structure is so useful, it's useful in a lot of ways. One is it keeps you focused on the right level of detail. You know it's not your job to figure out everything there is to know about the characters or the conflict or the situation. You're just trying to build a platform for further development. So if you don't have to worry about detail because your detail is controlled, can't go more than a page, now you can work effectively to come up with ideas that amuse you and fill in the blanks on the page without getting distracted by, is she wearing a yellow dress or a green dress? Is she five foot tall? Is she six foot seven? I don't care about any of that right now. The other thing it does that is of no small value is it makes your idea much easier for other people to read and understand. I'm sure there are a lot of people who think that the idea of getting into sitcom is write a Bible for a show. You know, write a big, heavy presentation document that goes on for 20 or 30 pages. I've read my share of those. I've worked as a development executive. They suck. They're all bad. And I can tell in one page whether I'm interested in the show or not. So why give me 20 pages when one will do the trick? So the strategy that I've come up with, this one-page pitch template, lets you, the user, develop a lot of ideas very quickly and lets me, the consumer, evaluate those ideas very quickly. And that's like the Haifong phone book, boys. It's a win-win situation. There was a joke there that was just, thank you, Bo. Thank you. I thought I was going to have to force it. but I'm too white. I don't want to. Oh, God. <laughs> laughing at anything like that. He's from the he's from Georgia, so that's enough. Said. Please well, forgive me. We just got internet over here. We <laughs> just got internet over, uh, over that, here. Uh, so, so look, both some of this information is available in the Little Book of Sitcom. Uh, sort of the reason that we're here today is not for the Little Book of Sitcom, which has been around for a bit, but the audiobook version, the massively author-narrated audio version. Narrated by me. Did I make that clear? I did say author narrated, and I am the author. Uh, that hasn't been widely available for about 10 years or so, and it is now broadly available on Audible. Well, specifically available on, on Audible. So I'm kind of um, reintroducing people specifically to the author narrated audio because people have so much fun with it. I mean, I'm, I'm sure, well, let's put it this way. If I'm doing my job right, then uh, I'm getting you excited. I'm, I'm, I'm making you feel uh, inspired and making you feel like the work that you want to do can be done by you. And so if you can imagine a little bit of sitcom together with my voice in your ear, mm. you're going to get a lot more of that kind of cheap thrill that will also lead you to effective practice of stand-up comedy. So I'm uh, sorry, of sitcom. That's the pitch. I almost tipped the 
um, tip the reveal. The next book I'm working on, which I will now tip the reveal, is the little book of stand-up. And oh, and it'll be out in about six months or so. I'm hoping that we can circle back and discuss that. Uh, For sure. Um, because as you know, I am no expert in stand-up comedy. But as you know, I am a self-described expert in anything I care to call myself an expert in. And uh, uh, people are really going to get a lot of value out of that book because I'm taking the same approach that I have, look at everything with analysis and wonder, and apply it to stand-up comedy. And I'm working on the manuscript right now. I'm, I'm editing it now. And I got to tell you, it is really, it has that same kind of punch. I know I'm free associating, but guys, you're looking at a formerly broken writer. And I realize now that I am healed. I just in this moment, when I just said, I've got this kind of punch. I told you I started doing art five years ago. What I didn't tell you was that I started doing art because I it was broken as a writer. I couldn't think of anything that I wanted to write that would make me feel good about writing. I had some other life circumstances. I had shoulder surgery and couldn't write for a while. So I took up art to get myself out of a creative funk. It was a big challenge and, and a lot of ego challenge because I knew nothing about art. But I was hoping that if I stayed with it long enough, it would reinvigorate me creatively and get me back on track as a writer. And then I went through a long period of time where I said, screw it. I don't even care if I ever get back to being a writer. I'm loving the art so much. But now that I stand at the far side of the first draft of my next book, I realize that all the joy that I got for all those years in writing with this book has come back to me at last. And to kind of put a bow on this that's why we do what we do we'd love for the audience to love it but we really need to get ourselves off as creative people day in and day out our job is to get ourselves off as profoundly as possible and and i realize now that i have oh man this is, is I, this is going to sound bad coming out of my mouth just get ready for it I, at long last i have found my way back to a satisfactory practice of creative masturbation through writing and you just realized that while we're on this live stream? Yeah, yeah, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. And 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 cut wheels within wheels. This is why I teach. This is why I communicate because this is not a new experience to me. I'm trying to explain something to you and it makes me think about it differently. And it it introduces me to new ideas. I, in some senses, I want to say revelation. When I teach, I experience revelation. When anybody teaches, they experience revelation if they're doing it right. You know that, don't you, Joel? Yeah, I love when, it. Yeah. So when you see them getting what you're proposing, when you yeah. see that light go on, and maybe you had to work at it, you had to, your usual way of explaining it didn't get there. I need a different tool. I need a different approach because I'm not communicating with this comedian in this way. So you come up with a different strategy, a different metaphor, a different, let's try this. That's how you advance your practice as a, as a comic while you're also advancing your practice as a teacher. Mm -hmm. and, and that's not for everybody, but I think a lot of people who could be great teachers and get a lot of value out of it are blocked by those who can't do teach. And I always say, how about this? Those who can do, do both. You yeah, know, so. I, yeah, all any anything I teach is based on my own personal experience and what I had to learn the hard way. I nothing I teach is based on guesswork or like some sort of theorizing of what a solution to their struggle could be. I only teach what I have personally experienced, you know, like I don't, I, I can't do it otherwise. It's not, but authentic. you, 
but but you've gone the the extra step of looking at what you're experienced what you've experienced and figuring out what makes it work the way it works mm-hmm. for, for, sure. for example for example when a joke doesn't work what's the first thing you fix uh the show it's the audience's fault you just go to a different show (laughs) (laughs) that's a profound answer ladies and gentlemen spoken like a true pro what's the second thing you fix i i usually look at what the premise is like what am i trying to say with this joke and did it come across that's usually where I start. If if I believe it, sometimes I say a joke once and then I'm like, oh, I don't even like it after saying it out loud. But when mm-hmm. I listen back, if I believe there's something there and it didn't get the reaction, I revisit what I'm trying to say with the joke to begin with and kind of start back from square one. I was going to um, say a margarita, but, you know. A margarita. Um, I usually try and figure out what, what the keyword is. What's the word that makes the puzzle, solves the puzzle, mm-hmm. and put the keyword last. Because if, if the joke has lacks tension, it may be on a structural level that I'm giving the audience information. Then they have to hold on to that information through the length of the joke, then hear the punchline, then go back and retrieve the information in order to make the joke work. And by the time they do all of that, the joke has lost its uh, pop. It, it, it's the the explosive quality that it has. I'll give you an example, if I may. Mm-hmm. Um, I told you earlier that I uh, play Ultimate Frisbee. Uh, What you don't know is that I'm actually a world gold medal holder in the sport of Ultimate Frisbee. This is true, but this is ironic because I was voted in high school least likely to complete the 50-yard dash. Uh, That's a real (laughs) vote? Uh, in my high school, yeah. But, they really but, stretch. But, you guys must have had a vote for everything. <laughs> well, but look, but look, if I if I pitched the joke this way, if I said because I was voted least likely to complete the fifty yard dash in high school, then you have to hear the words fifty yard dash, then the extra words in high school, then oh. go back to fifty yard dash, then put the whole thing together. That's what causes the tension to dissipate. So again, as a practitioner and and beyond the idea of go find a better mic, what you do is say, um, if a joke, if I tell a joke, one of two things happens. It either works or it doesn't work. If it works, then I can continue to polish it. If it doesn't work, I got to figure out what's broken and how to fix it. And over time, you've built up a vocabulary of strategies or tools for taking broken jokes and fixing them, reexamining the premise, finding out if it's true to my voice. Does the audience have enough information to solve the puzzle of the joke? Is the keyword in the right place? Uh, is this old news? Have they heard the joke before? Sometimes a joke can stumble just because you're repeating words, and the act of repeating words will suck the tension out of the joke. Mm. Can I give you an example of this one? This is a new one. This is this is a, a dad joke without parallel. Okay. I'll give it to you the good way, and then I'll give it to you the bad way, because if I give you the bad way first, I'm going to kill it, and I don't want to kill it. Okay. So this is a pirate joke. Are you ready for a new pirate joke? You haven't heard one of these in a long, long time. All righty. Okay. What is a pirate's favorite form of curbside commerce? Uh, Arbor Eats. So close. A yard sale. Ah, (laughs) nice. But in the original version of the joke, it, it's not curbside commerce. It's just some place placeholder. What's the favorite form of rummage sale or garage sale or yard sale? And none of that works because as soon as I use the word sale, I kill the punchline. 
I can't use the word sale in the setup and the punchline. Is that an inner game thing? It may be just a fetish on my part, but I, I am scrupulous to avoid that. I don't want, um, I don't want to sully the punchline by tipping it, by giving the audience any version of that word before I get there. And if you listen to people who don't quite know this, you can hear jokes failing because the setup and the punchline are too alike. Mm. They sound too much alike. There's not enough room for the audience to be misdirected or deceived and brought to a new conclusion. Now, I've been writing jokes since before I could write, actually. The first joke I landed was uh, in my kindergarten Christmas play. I was Santa Claus, but I happened to have a black eye. And so when I went out on stage, I gave the audience my other eye uh, in profile and then turned and gave the audience my black eye and landed it hard at five. So I've been at this a long time, but a lot of people have been at it a long time. The ones who succeed are the ones who built a feedback loop of information. The stuff they know how to do, they're aggressive in turning it into new material and new discoveries. And so we can put it in the greater context of another big concept in small words, self-awareness. The journey that we're on is a journey of self-awareness. And I don't mean self-awareness in a, like, I can die and go to heaven because I've achieved enlightenment sense. But just self-awareness in the practical matter of, this is me trying to do what I want to do. What do I know about me trying to do what I want to do? The more we go deeper and deeper into ourselves, into self-reflection, self-inspection, uh, self-exploration, the better we get at solving problems, little problems, like how to tell a joke, and the better we get at solving big problems, like how do I get out of my dead-end job and into a fulfilling career. It all starts and ends with self-awareness, and this is kind of the message of the little book of stand-up. And this is why I think it's going to be such a different make, difference maker, wow. because people don't talk about stand-up comedy in the context of self-awareness. It's almost the opposite of that. It's like, who are you going to pretend to be? But I'm interested in exploring a more authentic way of being that kind of practitioner. Again, not because I'm expecting great success in the field, but because I'm passionately interested in getting better at doing what I want to do well. That's something I've, as like, as we've been building hot breath and trying to figure out just the best way to help comics and what the struggles are. And I feel like from my, my own personal experience and from just knowing so many comedians, like mindset, is such like a crucial component to being a comedian and persevering. And we seem a lot of us to have like a scarcity mindset or a limited mindset that really holds us back. Um, in, in the little book of stand up, I talk about status and the way comics think about status. You go into a club, who's better than you, who's not as good as you, who has more experience, who has less experience. And I think that dovetails with what you're talking about, scarcity thinking. Yeah. I fear for my status in this environment that I'm in right now. I'm scared. I'm scared that I'm going to lose status or people are going to challenge me that I don't have the status I'm claiming to have. And a lot of this amounts to a fair amount of noise in your head. And so in the book, I give strategies for stepping outside of status and thinking about ways to participate in a community that doesn't require you to measure yourself against anybody else. And this isn't a matter of saying uh, uh, comparisons are odious, you know, don't compare yourself to anybody else. It's more a matter of saying, 
When I go into an environment, let's say I'm, I'm an open micer, I want something. I want a slot. I want approval. I want my jokes to land. I want more opportunities. I want a lot of things. And the people around me have access to those things. They have the power to give me those things. The booker can give me the slot. The audience can give me the approval. You know, some, somebody else can give me another comic can give me an opportunity. When I want and you have the power to give, then I have low status and you have high status. That's just the natural way of things. In any place where somebody's buying and somebody's selling, the seller has high status, the buyer has low status. So in the sense that we want something out of our, our stand-up environment, we can be thought of as people with low status trying to achieve high status. The way out of this trap is to say, I'm not gonna think about I want you have. I'm going to think about I want and I have, you want and you have, where do our interests meet? And here comes the magic phrase, how can we serve common cause? The minute you put common cause on the table, you level status, because the assumption is you have something to offer, a gig, but I have something to offer, five hellaciously funny minutes, and that's where we're going to meet. And that's where status, status is going to balance, and now I don't have to be afraid of status at all. Bo, I feel like I cut you off. Did you have more questions about sitcom writing? I kind of oh, derailed and no, that was like the biggest one. Is where, not the biggest that the big question was where to start. Um, because actually, I mean, like I do, I do have this ambition to start writing stuff um, based on some of my stand-up. So it was more curious of where do you start. Um, well, starting with your experience is a good place to start. Uh, if, if you're trying to make the simplest form of sitcom, then try comic opposites, which works like this. Figure out what your own comic filter is. Well, let's start with that. Bo, what is your comic filter? What, when people say you're funny, why do they say you're funny? Is it, are, you, are you cerebral? Are you cynical? Are you innocent? What's your deal? Um, innocent. Okay. So let's say you define yourself as an innocent. What's the opposite of an innocent? Guilty. Sorry, a guilty. No, that's in. Well, I was thinking more innocent in terms of naive. Um, cynical, sophisticated, cynical. worldly, yeah. okay. bitter, yeah. maybe. So, sitcom in its simplest form, you take the world's most innocent person and the world's most cynical person and lock them together and make them fight. And make them fight about their worldview. Make it be that the innocent one wants to prove to the cynical one, cynic is wrong, innocence rules. And make it the cynic's job to school the innocent that there's no place in this world for your naivete. You got to get woke. You have to get sophisticated, cynical like me. You see this in sitcoms. If you look at them, the good ones are all built on this idea. I'm in defense of my worldview. If I can get you to agree that my worldview is correct as a sitcom character, I feel great. If I don't achieve my goal, I feel bad, but I'm much more interested in getting you to agree with my worldview than even getting what I want. Sitcom characters are always pursuing their self-interest, sorry, their self-image at the expense of their self-interest. So if you take two comic opposites and make them go to war with each other, that's the simplest form of sitcom I can think of. And there are plenty of, plenty of successful sitcoms that have been built on that structure. Right now, I'm thinking about Dharma and Greg. Do you remember Dharma and Greg? Oh, yeah, loved that it, show. It was it was Chuck Lorre's 
first show and we know what all he's gone on wow. to do yeah wow but what is it it's a hippie versus a conservative this is a liberal versus um a free versus versus conservative uptight yeah and ben, yeah, ben web actually asked what are some of your favorite shows to watch as a joke writer and why Wow. Um, I'm a longtime fan of the Big Bang Theory. I know it gets a big bad rep, but I will watch it in reruns almost constantly. That show has a, makes a lot of different promises. I like it for Penny. A lot of people do. Um, in terms of current sitcoms, I've just watched Hacks, which is really good. It's on HBO Plus, I think. Yeah. HBO. Yeah, that's really good. Mm -hmm. In terms of my all-time favorites, the one that always rushes to the top of the list is the British version of coupling. I don't know if you know this. You, if you know of it at all, you know it as a disastrous American remake that didn't last for one season around the turn of the century. I, I could give a chapter and verse on why that failed. Coupling was written by Stephen Moffat. Stephen Moffat, who subsequently wrote Doctor Who and Sherlock. Stephen Moffat is the man. Wow. And, and, and you guys or anybody in the audience or anybody in the greater universe, anybody listening to me now in the environment of Pluto, get your hands on all four seasons of the British BBC sitcom coupling. It will blow your pretty mind. There's, There's several people. people right now saying how yep. great that show is. Yep. I've never heard of it. I haven't either. Well, I'll uh, you, you have such, you have such a treat in store for you. I'm excited. You such a yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yep. Yeah. I'll definitely, yeah. I'll yeah. definitely check that out. I, like, I love all the people saying they love it too. That's good. Yeah. Well, British, good. British show that's, wise, I was a huge fan of, are you being served? So I'll have to check that out. That's kind of a classic. I'm, I'm more of a red dwarf kind of guy from that era. It's another one that geez. Oh, you kids. I, I, my nephews came to me one day. They were young. They were nine or 10 years old. This was a while ago. They came to me one day. They said, uncle John, have you ever heard of Led Zeppelin? Nah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what to do with that, you kids. But I am aware that the, I met somebody yesterday who said she just discovered sitcom during the pandemic. And I thought, how great would it be to have a love of sitcom that was completely unrealized? Like you could spend the rest of your life watching great sitcoms and uh, and she's a younger person. I know she doesn't know, you know, a tenth of the sitcoms that I'm aware of. Yeah. Uh, Would you like to know the worst sitcom? Ooh. As long as we're talking about the best sitcom, I can tell you the worst uh -huh. sitcom ever made. And I can tell you why. It. I can tell you how I know it's called the worst sitcom ever made, because there was a podcast about it called The Worst Sitcom Ever Made. In 1993, I went to New Zealand to recruit and train their first generation of sitcom writers. Very successful project. Took 100 writers, boiled them down to a writer's room of 10 or so. We developed a bunch of different pilots. We pitched them to the network. They bought one. I went home. They produced the show. It was an astounding failure. It was like a world historical failure because the audience just didn't want it to be a success. They were so comfortable with the idea of Americans know how to make sitcoms and we don't, wow. that they had a lot of that scarcity thinking built into their own reaction to the show. Other problems, miscasting, other problems, budgets, other problems, network didn't know what they were doing. Other problems, the scripts weren't as good as they could be because it was everybody's first time. The point is the show wasn't nearly as bad as, as everybody thinks it was. I myself have worked on many much worse sitcoms personally, 
But one of the people on the show, one of the writers on the show, carried the pain of that with him for a quarter century and finally said, I got to get this out of my out of my guilt, whatever, made a podcast about it. Wow. And, and it's it's great. It's another recommend. If you're interested in sitcom stuff, the worst sitcom ever made, it's just six episodes. I'm in a couple of them. And uh, <laughs> you will hear me say these words. Everywhere I go in the world, I try to get them to drink the Kool-Aid. <laughs> and out of context, that's a very bad thing to say. Uh-huh. What I, In the context, I mean, there in New Zealand, as is everywhere, I just try to get them signed on to the idea of let's have fun, do good practice. You know, let's believe in what we're doing. That's what I meant. But when you hear the, the world-renowned author say, everywhere I go, I try to get people to drink the Kool-Aid. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily the reaction. It, it makes me realize I've been overtaken by events. And think about this. Who even knows what drink the Kool-Aid means these days? They know the expression, but they don't know the roots of it. I don't know. People now just it, think diabetes, is, I guess. Does that, have, does that have something to do with the whole... Um, the cult, right? They yeah. are the cult. The, was it? Yeah, uh, Jonestown. 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 Hmm. Jonestown, yeah. But that's... That's a fragile piece of information, and it's going away. But long after it's gone, the phrase "drink the Kool Aid" will still be meaningful. And and when we bring this back to stand up and what's happening there, um, there's a lot of language that works for us as jokes because it has a meaning that has been shed. And because the meaning is shed, and only a new meaning is left that doesn't quite fit, there's a lot of room for for funny there. I was listening to Tignataro and Cheryl Hines. They do a podcast about documentaries, Ooh. and they they were riffing on the word boob. The, the they'd come across the phrase booby trap, and they were trying to connect it to breasts, but it doesn't connect to breasts. It connects to probably something in French, bobet, a trap that is a surprise, a boobet trap. Um, but but that's the kind of kind of language fun we get into all the time in English because our our language is so filled with artifacts mm. of of our bastard development. Sorry, I'm rambling on again. I do tend to no, do you, that. No, you do. give me a microphone and stand back. Let's uh, you're good. Yeah, you're let's, good. Let's run through a few questions people have here. Um, and I've actually yeah. noticed, like you've actually written for some pretty heavy hitting. Uh, I'm sorry, sitcoms as well, like Married with Children, I'm seeing Head of Class, Charles in Charge, like everything I'm familiar with. And and the story behind each and every one is bittersweet because the person who was racking up those credits was not good enough for the game at the time. And I don't mean in terms of writing jokes. This is important. I mean in terms of self-acceptance. I was so needy of acceptance and validation from the people around me that I couldn't function in that environment very well. Everybody else was as needy as I was, but they just weren't as vocal about it. And so I was, I, I made a lot of people uncomfortable because I was so uncomfortable myself. And, and I often say to myself, Man, if only I had it to do over again, if I just had a bit more self-awareness and insight at that time, then the arc of my life would have been completely different. But that puts me in mind of a moment that took place in Rome in the late 1990s. I had just taught a class that lasted all day, a comic toolbox class. It was a good one. It was really, people got a lot out of it. I got a lot out of it. And uh, during question and answer, somebody 
raised the following question with respect. They said, Mr. Vorhaus, if you're so good and you seem to be that good, why aren't you working in Hollywood? And the answer that came to my mind in that moment was, if somebody asked me, it's a good question. If somebody in Hollywood asked me that question right now, you know what I'd tell them? Fuck you. I'm in Rome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, and that's really the way I came to think about it. The sitcom career I had was one of those things that I passed through without mastering, but it opened up so many other really fruitful doors to me that it, it would be disrespectful to all the good stuff that's happened in my life if I were to look back on that and say that's where I went wrong, which doesn't mean that I don't wake up in the middle of the night with a voice inside my head saying, what if? I think we all do that. Again, it comes down to uh, mind management, if you want to put it in those terms. Day in and day out, you're going to struggle with regret. Day in and day out, you're going to struggle with guilt. You're going to struggle with this sense of, I'm falling behind in my existence. That's the one that, that wakes me up in a cold sweat. I'm falling behind in my existence. I'm running out of time. I'm not going to get it all done. Okay, that's not going to change. Those ideas aren't going to go away. and You can't make them go away by burying them. What you can do is raise them to the surface and look at them where you can engage with them and do you some good. Sorry, we wandered away from the questions. Let's go back to the, the people's management. questions. I love it. Yeah. So, yeah, let's... Um... We will uh, close out with these questions here. We have just a few. Uh, Mike Marr, I want to make a five-minute set like a script where each joke is like an act in a play. Any suggestions? Yeah, I got a couple. Okay, one is stay tuned for the little book of stand-up because I do have a template for building a five-minute set that will make you rethink what you think should happen in a five-minute set. Uh, And the other is I'm going to give you a tool. Okay, I'm going to give you a tool that will help you with this. Think about your set as existing in three parts. The first part of your set, you're in a state of rejection. Then in the middle of the set comes a new piece of information that changes your emotional state. And then the last part of the set, you move into acceptance based on the new piece of information. I'll give you an example. Uh, you're doing five minutes over your and your girlfriend's pregnancy scare, just as an example. The first half of the bit leads up to the reveal. And in that first half, the attitude of the people there is, we don't know what's going to happen. We're not really sure it's going to be what we wanted to do. We've got a lot of anxiety, a lot of stress. This is bad, 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 bad. Now here comes the result of the pregnancy test, positive or negative, doesn't matter what. If it's positive, it changes emotions in one way. If it's negative, it changes them in another way. But either way, it's going to bring about a big shift from this is bad, 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 bad. I don't know what's going to happen to, well, now I know what's going to happen. And that's either good news or bad news, but I got to deal with it. So you can think of your whole set as an arc of change from rejection to acceptance about a proposition or a thing or an idea or an emotion, and then build it around a new piece of information that changes your understanding of that topic. Try that. Now you have, now you have, now you have a story structure. And uh, there's something else I talk about in the book of stand up. Um, <laughs> call back, ladies and gentlemen. Go go read the comic toolbox. You'll see all about callback. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> um, can I can I can I tell you that um, uh, 
I've wandered from the point, but I don't care. Um, I'm I'm as happy to be here in this moment now as I think you're happy to have me here. But I think that we were a little uh, uh, we had a little hard luck in getting together. I think I reached out to you quite some time ago mm-hmm. in one form or another and didn't quite connect to you. And I've always been a little self-conscious that I wasn't good enough for Joel Byers. What? But now I know I am. What? <laughs> really? No, not at all. Not at all, John. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I well, appreciate you sharing, even being willing to say that, but that that's not the case at all. I can't tell you how many guests I've been wanting to have on that I just, I just haven't come to fruition yet. So no. you're, you're not, it's not like I, I got your email a while ago and was like, Oh wait, who is this John guy? No, I remember when you joined the Facebook group and I had people message me and they're like, did you, did you know that John Borhouse is a member of our writing room? Uh, wow. Like I'm, I'm serious. So like it's, it's, I definitely was not by any means trying to project that onto you at all, John. So my, no, and, 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 no, no, no. I, I think it, I, I think it's more like what, what we've been talking about. As the famous philosopher's crowded house once said, everywhere you go, you always take the weather with you. Hmm. Weather with you, weather with you. Everywhere you go, you always take the weather with you. By which I mean, I'm going to project onto you. I'm going to project my insecurities onto you. It doesn't matter who you are. And and it doesn't matter how scrupulous I am in saying, don't project your insecurities. I'm still going to do it. So that's just a fact of life. But here's the principle I I really wanted to demonstrate. If I share my insecurities with you, it builds a bond between us. It gives us freedom to operate more effectively with each other. I don't lose anything by saying this is how I honestly feel about you or felt about you. I only gain the benefit of a closer connection with another person. Now, when you think about all the secrets we carry around inside ourselves as we move through our stand-up careers or our sitcom careers, whatever they are, all of those secrets amount to, man, I hope people don't find out this truth about me. And what we discover is we gain practice at being in writer's rooms, for example, that you can't operate effectively until you start to share truths, meaningful truths. Um, that's, that's what lubricates the creative process. So in dropping that little, can I tell you the truth, bomb, Joel, I'm actually kind of lubing you up for whatever else we might end up doing together. And yet again, I have stepped on a landmine. John Vorehouse lubes up Joel Byers on podcast. I can <laughs> see the headlines now. I can see the headlines now. <laughs> wait till my wife finds out. She's going to say, that's a real departure for you. Boy, oh, boy Caramel's going to find itself in a very sticky situation. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we caramel call. is code. In case you don't know, caramel is code around here. And uh, is it? For, for, yeah, that's a, she, that's code. She she listens, so I say caramel, and I'm talking about my wife. Oh, is that right? Because I have a code. I, around Christmas time, I ate a bunch of caramel. Um, I'm a recovering sugar addict, and I ate a bunch of caramel and did a Zoom show all cracked out. And then now caramel has just been this running um, joke in the community. <laughs> By recovering uh, sugar I, addict, that means he just hasn't had sugar in the last. Well, I mean, I I, I always consider a high functioning alcoholic to be someone who's just particularly good at drinking. So <laughs> we're we're called teachers. We're professionals. We're called we're we're, we're called teachers. We're called teachers. And I always say, you know, you've had too much to drink when you go to brush something off your shoulder and it's the floor. 
<laughs> Have you heard that one? <laughs> it's great. No. Uh, um, Sullivan asked, what's your motivation to create? Um, legacy is the, is the one word answer, but I need to expand on it a little bit. Legacy is an issue for writers, artists of all kinds. We want to know, is this stuff going to have any meaning after we die? And my personal philosophy is whether it has meaning or not, I'm not going to know about it because I'll be dead. But the circumstances of my life are such that I have created a thing that will live beyond my death. The comic toolbox, for sure. People are going to be reading that. They've been reading it for a quarter of a century. They'll be reading it at least another quarter of a century, and I'll be dead. But or another circumstances of my life whatever. are such that I... So I think of this artifact, this book, as a carrier wave. That's my carrier wave. That's where I transmit. That's my frequency. And that carrier wave is going into the future. And everything that I create from this point forward will ride on the carrier wave, maybe to nothing, maybe to nowhere, maybe people will forget about the comic toolbox or never find anything related to it. But everything I do can have the possibility of a home in the future because of this one thing that I know for sure has a home in the future. So that's what motivates me. And uh, uh, Bobby asked, how do you get hired to write sitcoms? How do you get networks to notice you? Great question. Write a script, then write another, then write another, then write a couple more and show one of those. That's the start because your first ones aren't going to be good enough to get you work. But over time, they'll get better and they can start to get you work. And by the way, those early scripts, workshop them, take notes from other people, get better at your craft, always be improving your craft. When I was coming up in Hollywood, it was understood that you had to be in Hollywood to work in sitcom because you had to take meetings, phone calls, schmooze. I think probably that that is still the best bet. If you can be physically present in the community that's doing what you want to do, you have a better chance of being successful with it, whether it's stand-up or sitcom or whatever. However, in this day and age, there's a lot more opportunity for um, a cottage industry sitcom, handcrafted sitcoms. You can make a decent sitcom with a cell phone now. Mm. So if you have a script that you think is worth creating into a visual artifact, go ahead and do it. There's no barrier to entry. When I was coming in, there was a huge barrier to entry. I got around it. But tech technologically, I couldn't go and make my own sitcom. That just wasn't going to be possible in ways that it is now. The market is also completely shattered by streaming services and other online um, portals and 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 content spots, whatnot. So you don't have to rely on Hollywood in air quotes to be your market. There are many, many, many markets that you can exploit at this point. But the short answer is do the work, write the script, write another script and then another script. Cause if you're not doing that, then you're really just um, unsuccessfully pleasuring yourself. Yeah. All right. This, is it, and, this has been an interesting uh, interview, lubing and and pleasuring yourself, <laughs> and 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 I think he said something about no fuckery or something like that. Oh, um, uh, plenty of plenty, plenty of fuck around bandwidth. There you go, that one. So this has been an interesting uh, interview. Um, very fun. Uh, John Molehill asks. Um, this was something I was thinking. What do you think about? Um, the it's all been done before nothing new under the sun mentality three words romeo and juliet two words three words west side story all right romeo and juliet reinvented as west side story same story both successful there are plenty of stories that are evergreens and we don't have to worry about reinventing the wheel 
the thing is, whatever you bring to the story is unique. No one can tell your story the way you can tell it, even if somebody else has already told a story like it. Um, let's say romantic comedy is an example. You think that there's no room for something new. Whatever romantic comedy you write, you're going to bring your sensibility to it, your authenticity to it. The more it's about you on an emotional level, the more it it removes the question of, is this going to sound like something somebody else has done? It Short answer. Yes, it's been done before, but it's never been done by you, so it's okay for you to do it. I used to say this all the time in um, in Romania. I made a bunch of sitcoms in Romania, and, and they would say, well, this idea seems a lot like Married with Children. And I said, well, maybe it is, but it's never been done here before. And it's, it's not Married with Children. It's something else. But even if it sounds like Married with Children, it's never been done by you guys, so it's going to be a different thing. And that's always the case. With that said... It might be that your stuff sounds like other people's stuff because your stuff is, in fact, derivative. Mm. It might be that you're at the stage in your writing career where you're not actually writing TV dialogue. You're writing what you think TV dialogue is supposed to sound like. And the difference is that if you write it to make it sound like what you hear on TV, it doesn't work because it's not authentic. That's authentic to somebody else's voice. You have to write it the way it sounds right and authentic to your ear and then make it funny so that other people will recognize it as sitcom style writing. But that speaks to a level of human experience that you might not yet have. This is another kind of big block that I had when I was writing sitcom. I was just so young. I didn't have a lot of life experience to draw on. And I didn't have a lot of ways of accessing my inner, uh, my inner life. I, I couldn't think of my emotional landscape effectively. And it turns out these two questions are, are, are connected. How can I write something that will sound fresh and new, even though it's been done before? How can I do Gar Dharma and Greg for the 2020s, let's say? The answer lies in accessing your own emotional landscape so that what gets onto the page is a reflection of you, how you think and what you feel, rather than a reflection of what you think the audience expects the material to look like or sound like, all of which can be packaged up in the tiny phrase, keep giving them you until you is what they want. And, and I got to say, that's kind of interesting that you said Romeo and Juliet, and you brought up Darwin and Gray, because Darwin and Gray is just Romeo and Juliet told in a different way. But when you think about it, Chuck has taken that Darwin Gregg template and then remade it two more times with Big Bang Theory and Bob Hart's Abishola. It's the same template told differently. Uh, I was going to say, uh, and I, I could even see it in Two and a Half Men because mm -hmm. Charlie and, and uh, what's his name? Alan are such, are such strong forces of comic opposition to one another. But you're right. The, the love story has unfolded the same way. That's kind of a solved problem. And if we look back to when that problem got solved, the answer is friends. Mm -hmm. Because before friends, the idea of taking a romantic, a thwarted romance and weaving it into a stand-up, into a situation comedy didn't really exist. We were used to sitcoms that didn't have narrative drive in simplest terms. They were all standalone episodes and that satisfied us. Then friends came along and said, hey, we're gonna add an element of soap opera, Ross and Rachel to this thing. And then that'll give us not just jokes, but strong story drive. Oh, good idea. 10 years later, Ross and Rachel finally get together. Oh, sorry, did I spoil that for anybody? Ah. <laughs> Come on, man, I ain't got that far yet. Yeah. <laughs> Statute of limitations. Oh, 
Oh. Do you do you remember the movie um, uh, The Crying Game? No. Yes. No. No. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go there. This joke will okay. fail to land. It, it will it will bomb so spectacularly. I'm I'm stepping around the booby trap. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean the mammary trap. Another callback there. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a, yeah. I'm a fan. Um, man, I'm I'm a, I'm a fan of getting to do this when your next book comes out. Like you, you've dropped so much sauce today, as we say. You really shared a lot of sauce there. Yeah. Well, well, thank you for that. Um, if I may, if I'm if I may feign sincerity for a moment, <laughs> if I can fake sincerity for just a second. Um, there's much more sauce to be dropped, and I do welcome people to reach out to me directly. If you have my name, John Vorhaus, and it's spelled right there on your screen, mm-hmm. then you know where to find me. You can find me through my website, coincidentally the same, John Vorhaus, and there's a contact um, page there. So you, you can reach me with an email, and I am interested in hearing from you. I love to help people solve their problems. I really engage with this, so it's not, it's not an empty promise. Yeah, and reach, uh, out, reach out to you also for that one-page template as well. Oh, yes. Yes. Uh-huh. See, that's a concrete offer. So you don't forget, order before midnight tonight. We'll include <laughs> the entire state of Rhode Island at no extra charge. And I'll, I'll paste <laughs> a link to your book as well to where they can get the audio version. Um, okay. For the, the and people can, always, people can always find my books on my website and also my Amazon author page. And, and cool art. Through my Redbubble store, you can get uh, uh, stickers and toilet seat covers and all kinds of fun stuff. Um, But that's not, I mean, that's that's important. Somebody said to me the other day, actually, I was doing a a podcast with some British guys, and they said, you're so upfront in promoting yourself. You know, you'll tell people where to find your books and you won't apologize for it. Everybody around here, we always apologize for it. And that's a common feeling. I mean, people... Somebody says to you, where can, where can I get your book? It hurts me to say where, because I'm afraid somebody's going to say, ha, ha, you think I'm going to spend $15 on your piece of crap? Uh-huh. I mean, this is, this is what we experience, and, and it really keeps us from promoting ourselves. But if we look at what's going on in promotion, promotion is, is odious. We hate promotion like a cat hates baths. I get it. Nobody likes to do it. But we don't have to apologize for it. Because if we're sincere enough and earnest enough to create the thing in the first place, and we're not sincere enough and earnest enough to stand behind it as something somebody else would want, then we haven't completed our journey. So if you find yourself in a position where, I put it this way, I like to apologize for my work before I do it. Have you ever had that feeling? I, you, you, you see it all the time. People, people get up on stage and say, I'm not very good at this. Uh, or they're about to you know, they're pitch, me, they're pitch me something in the room. They pitch me a story idea, and they'll say, uh, this isn't really completely worked out yet. And I say, yeah, I get it. I like to apologize for my work before I do it, too. But if I'm going to be true to the process, if I'm going to be respectful to the part of me that made that, then I have to be respectful to the part of me that tries to sell that. Otherwise, I'm disrespecting the creative act that drove me in the first place. Boom. That's the rationale I use. Boom. Well, as, as we uh, land the plane, is there anything else you uh, want the, the hot breath of earth to know here? Any closing advice or anything? Um, keep doing what you're doing. 
Don't be daunted by the times we're in. We're in a time of great change, and uh, and we're not done changing. Oh, needless to say, um, I, I would imagine that if I were in your viewers' shoes right now, the hardest thing that I would be navigating is getting back to or getting for the first time, getting to the time inefficiencies that involve with involved with actually going out to clubs. Because if they spend a lot of time doing Zoom mics where you just drop in, you do your thing, you drop out, it's an hour and you're done. And now they're suddenly driving 20 miles to sit in an audience for three hours for a five-minute open mic, they're going to be looking at the value proposition in a much different light. And all I can tell you or them is write it out. If it's the place that you belong, you will find yourself drawn back there and you won't let the setbacks set you back. If it turns out that it's not the place that you're drawn, listen attentively to where you are being drawn and try to follow that voice. Because the place to arrive at is the place where every day is a joy because you're doing something that you love to do. And if you find yourself not doing what you love to do, check it and see if there's something else you can do instead. Preach. John Borat. Preach. Yep. Mic drop on Preach. that, my friend. Thank you so much for doing this. <laughs> That's a nice ending note right there. Yeah. So Hot Breathverse, go message John. Go to his website. Email him, get that one-page template, and also just ask him questions, get his books. I mean, what what I love about getting to do getting to do this podcast and getting connect with just so many other influential minds in comedy is just the sincere generosity of people in comedy, uh, for the most part, in terms of like people like helping other people that aspire to be comedians or comedy writers. Like they really, they really sincerely want to help people because it can be a lonely and competitive journey, but it doesn't have to be, you know? So I, I thank you for being one of those people, John. Thanks for listening. Hot breath of If you want to make this your best year in comedy, we've created a four comics by comics library of workshops and classes to help you level up your game today. Check them out linked in the show notes and I'll see you there. And I'll see you right here next Monday on Hot Breath. Hot Breath. This episode of Hot Breath is sponsored by our Patreon. If any of our content has helped your comedy career, join our Patreon linked in the show notes and get positive comedy karma for life. Probably.